Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Digital Guardian podcast. Our guest today is Brian Honan, owner CEO of BH Consulting, a cybersecurity consultancy based in Dublin, Ireland. He's also the founder and head of Ireland First Cert and former special advisor to Europol Cyber Crime Center. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me on board. Appreciate it. Hey, Brian. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Good. Hey, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. I think the last time I saw you was on a balmy evening in Amsterdam at one of the many RSA Europe's. <laughs> so. Yeah, we, what goes on in Amsterdam will stays in Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the origination of that of that particular phrase, right? The Las Vegas guys don't have much on Amsterdam. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's really a pleasure to have you on, and uh, we're really excited to to talk to you today about uh, the work you're doing with your own firm in Ireland and in the UK and in Europe, but also some of the other things you're a part of, certainly leading the CERT within Ireland and also your activity on a global theater. So why don't we get cracking? Uh, we've got a lot of topics we wanted to discuss with you because of the diversity of your background and what you see specific to Ireland as part of the EU and also beyond Ireland. And why don't you give us just a quick, I know Chris just did an introduction, but for those who are listening, who've never met or heard Mr. Honan speak, could you just give us like the three minute, you know, kind of tell us how you got where you are, you know, breakdown. Oh yeah, this is, I suppose, way back. My background goes back. I started off in IT back in the 1980s. I was only two years old then. <laughs> uh, I wish. But no, when I left school, I studied electronic engineering for a year in in college, uh, got an offer of a job in a, an insurance company. Uh, took that because Ireland was in the midst of a major recession back then. So having a job was much more valuable than having a degree. So took that role and after a year moved into the IT department where I was responsible for looking after their, their Wang mini system and uh, these new fangled things called PCs. So over the years, the personal networks and the mini systems and, the, and then the PCs grew more and more important and we moved away from a mainframe. So what was great about that environment was we brought a lot of the discipline and rigor that had been applied to mainframe computing for 20, 30 years at that stage down onto the client server, the PC environment. And it's it's something that has stuck with me ever since. And, and part of that role was insurance. Those systems were secure as they moved from Redview secure mainframe environments to these new platforms that nobody knew about. And uh, left them in the mid-90s to join a Swiss consulting firm looking after advising other clients throughout Europe on how to migrate from mainframes onto their platforms. Left them to join a, a startup in the, the dot-bomb era, went from the heights of the dot-com to the dot-bomb within six months, and then uh, was made redundant, became general manager of a, a managed uh, security service provider for a number of years, and then decided back in 2004 to set up my own firm, BH Consulting, because uh, I figured back then there was a lot of misinformation and a lot of confusion by customers over what they needed from security and they relied solely on IT resellers and, and, and vendors to say what they needed to, to be secure, which in many cases led to the wrong tools being bought or investment in the wrong areas. And I always went, you know, coming back to my days back in the, the insurance company was that they had brought along a lot of the disciplines that I, that 20 years later were still not using and applying to their Net PCs and, and network environments. So 2004, I set BH Consulting up as a, an independent firm. We don't resell software or hardware. We give pure consulting uh, services to our clients. And 
since those days now, we've grown to just under 15 people. We staff in Ireland, UK, Europe, and we have clients all over the globe. We have clients here in Ireland, we have clients in the US, we have clients in China and India and throughout Europe as well. So uh, we focus a lot on the strategic side of security and the management of, of information security, looking at areas such as governance uh, strategy, policy development, risk management, uh, security awareness training, ISO 27001, uh, the data protection and the general data protection regulation are two areas that we, we do a lot of work in now these days as well. But we've spent a lot of time as well helping our, our clients who've been involved in security instances, so helping them recover from breaches, uh, investigating those breaches, trying to figure out what happened and, and to prevent them happening again. And uh, yeah, that's in a hopefully three-minute nutshell as to to BH Consulting and ourselves. And uh, I suppose one of the other strings from my bow was back in 2008, I set up iResearch, which was the first computer emergency response team here in Ireland, which is a, a not-for-profit voluntary uh, body that we provide search services to the business community here in Ireland. So we try and coordinate any responses around security breaches, give out advisories each year. In November, we run our annual conference here in Dublin, which has grown in numbers. The last year, we had over 250 people attend the conference. So it's been pretty successful from that point of view. Yeah, so that's that's kind of it, guys. That's quite a lot. So you probably had more than a passing familiarity with, with the SNA to IP uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember it. Yeah, and token ring oh, and yeah. all the other great stuff that and OS two and uh, all the other great platforms and operating systems that have come and gone. And yeah, to where we yeah, are today. I had a buddy, Rick, guy named Rick Safaris. He was a similar background. He, he was like an SNA to IP migration guru. I don't use that term guru often, but. It's- and it got to the point where I was driving him a little bit crazy because he wanted to do other things. But there was in such a high demand in like 2000 to 2003, you know, that he just was on a lot of these gigs. But uh, Well, that's great. It's, it's awesome to hear your background. You know, obviously, we've met and talked many times over the years. But I think it's always good for people, you know, listening to kind of get a more than a passing familiarity with our guests. So you said something that was kind of interesting to me with regards to BH Consulting and that you guys focus most more on strategic elements of security and security management, which I think is important. So we've got a list of questions that we always tend to prepare for and with our guests. And uh, one that I think is really an interesting one would be with respect to the nexus between GRC and threat cognition or, or people, organizations, awareness of threats in the threat landscape. In your travels, Brian, whether it's here in the US or in Ireland or in Europe or in, in Asia, for that matter, do you think that most organizations, from your perspective, what you see, really pay enough attention to that nexus between GRC as in terms of like meeting compliance checklists, whether they're audits or you know governance and compliance regulatory type things, and under and more than a passive familiarity, let's say a, a deep knowledge of of the threats and threat landscapes and threat actors. Do you think that that nexus exists, or are we still trying to struggle with two different disciplines in making them one? I think it's the latter there, Will. It's it's two different disciplines trying to make them one because particularly on larger clients, you will have a compliance function, which often is separate from the cybersecurity or information security function. And sometimes they, they may talk to each other, but 
there's not a very structured way for many organizations to share, to evolve and develop that relationship. So very much the compliance people are focusing very much on the, on the compliance checklist. What's the minimum we need to get by? What, what, what do we have in place? What are our business risks? And they can often be, I've often seen in organizations where the IT security people or the cybersecurity people will have their own risk registers or a certain amount of risk done, but the discipline they apply is is not very mature. So we're, we're still very immature in risk management in cybersecurity. So that often when you go and talk to the compliance people, they might just have a line item on their risk register, which might be cybersecurity, and they might arbitrarily then pick a level of risk that, to, to apply to it. But if you ask the compliance people, why did you get to that level of risk or what do you mean by cybersecurity as being a risk, they kind of look at you blankly and you go to the IT people, they go, well, yeah, we don't know what. There doesn't seem to be a a gelling of those two functions together in many organizations. And uh, I think that is a, a failure. And, and indeed, if you want to coin the phrase in itself, it, it, it is a risk. In smaller businesses, you often find that the companies just, just want to, you know, what do I need to do to keep functioning? You know, being compliant with regulations is it's yet another headache that they have to try and fit that in, whether that's PCI or data protection or HIPAA or anything else. It's, a, it's another headache they have to try and manage and put in place on top of other stuff like health and safety, uh, anti-money laundering or any other compliance or regulatory environments that, that they work in. And they then, a particular smaller business, wouldn't have the internal skills, the internal capabilities to be able to identify what the key threats are. But I think if you even if you take both of them, guys, well, I think one of the big problems we have as an industry is the cry wolf syndrome. So that when I go and talk and engage to customers, they're worried about the latest and greatest zero-day announcements that have just happened. So all these zero-day bugs that have been been found with their logos and they hit the news headlines and you know there's big news stories for two three days and everybody's running around going oh my god oh my god what do we do about this zero day and yet you're going in and they've got no structure patch management they've got no change management they've got no idea of what systems they have they've no it asset management they don't know where their data is password policies and password controls which is still probably our weakest link are not being run effectively but yet we're distracted by the shiny. So even you know, the small business body even say that and the, the compliance people in the larger organizations get distracted by that as to do the cybersecurity professionals. We kind of like to to move to the cool and sexy stuff and focus on that rather than on the operation stuff and the day-to-day stuff that if we cover a lot of that, you're going to reduce your, your risk profile quite significantly. I recall you're talking about how people are distracted by the shiny box and a lot of scare tactics and FUD and stuff like that. So yeah, I was curious if you could talk more about, you know, maybe the security industry failing to establish trust and maybe this idea that not sharing as much information. Yeah, like the problem we have, and if you go back to that talk I gave at Fires Bulletin, the key key thing I highlighted was the air traffic safety, you know, airline safety. Over the years, the airline industry has learned from all the failures that has had, that all the crashes and everything else that has happened, that 
what that has driven is uh, after every crash, there is an investigation. There's figuring out what happened, what was the problem. Was it the fault of the pilots? Was it the fault of the engineers? Was it faulty parts? Was it the weather? You know, what was the cause of the, the crash? What do we need to do to ensure that doesn't happen again and bring that back in? So like any of us who travel, you know, if you spend time looking at the flight crew before they, they even close the, the doors, there's a whole lot of checks that, that go on. The pilots are going through checklists before they take off. They, they walk around the plane. They check everything. The cabin crew go through, check the cabin to make sure all the doors are closed and everything else. We have our mandatory security awareness training every time you get on a plane and that's your, you go to the safety talk all the time. There's brochures there, you know, and there is constant communication between the crew and the cabin crew and the cockpit from the cockpit back down to, to the ground. And so much so that last year, 2018, there were zero deaths caused by airline crashes. And if you look at that trend from the 1970s, it's a consistent downward trend to, to where it was last year. But yet in the information security industry, we tend to be reticent to, to share this information. We don't have the same rigor to look at what is it that we need to do to, to secure us. And I gave, I gave the example of Equifax, where at the time when Equifax announced a, their breach down to a missing patch on Apache Struts, the whole cybersecurity industry just it kind of went into a mocking overdrive and going, oh my God, how could you not have patched your, your system and even became quite personal against the CSO of Equifax highlighting that the CSO didn't have a, a technical degree uh, that she had a, a degree in music well like I don't have a third level qualification you know so does that mean I'm not qualified to be a security professional I'm not qualified to be a CSO these are things that as an industry we need to to mature and to get over and if you if you read the reports that Equifax did highlight is that they said, yeah, we, we didn't patch our systems because the vulnerability scanner that we had didn't identify that the patch was missing. So they were doing everything that that every good security program is doing. They were regularly running vulnerability scans. They were reading the output of the vulnerability scans, and then they were reacting on those vulnerability scans. But the vulnerability scanner they were using did not identify that the patch was not there. I asked the question at the conference, hands up, who here would love to know a, what vulnerability scanner Equifax were using, and B, why did that vulnerability scanner not detect the, the, the missing patch? Because if we know that, instead of mocking the individuals be, behind that for doing their job, well, if we know the tool they used didn't work as expected or wasn't configured properly, well, then we can take that lesson away ourselves and apply that to our own environments. But yeah, we're too focused on picking holes in each other and trying to be have one upmanship on each other, trying to be, you know, I'm I'm super elite uh, hacker or I'm a super elite security professional. I never make a mistakes. Well, you know, if you, if you don't make mistakes, then I have to say you're not human because to, to err is to be human. We all make mistakes. The key thing is that we learn from our mistakes and even it's even better to learn from other people's mistakes before you make them yourselves. And, and to me, that is one of the key weaknesses we have in our in industries that we don't, we're very reticent to share information and that's either from, we don't like to, in some cases, people like to keep the information to themselves because the, it 
gives them a sense of power and others you know maybe their their companies don't like them to share information oh we actually do have this fear if if i admit that i don't know what i'm doing or that i've made a mistake i'm going to be made uh, fun of by the rest of the industry so therefore why should i volunteer and move forward and say i've made a mistake i'm not going to do that and i think that's a big problem that we have to overcome in our industry yeah that is that's an interesting challenge right in that you've got that one side of uh which is a failure and it's a noteworthy one right it's hubris and fear that prevents us from having those open dialogues which would be you know uh truly important i would really love to know which vulnerability scanner they were using as well (laughs) (laughs) you know and saying that right you know i think you know some of the work i know you're involved with in ireland and in in the eu which may at some point in time have a fairly dramatic impact on how regulation and governance is seen here in the united states is 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 the uh the forthcoming gdpr initiative what can you tell us from your perspective brian uh, that individuals and organizations alike really need to understand if they're doing business in the EU, what do they need to be prepared for? What stands out as being the most important elements that are germane to the GDPR? I've taken a look at it at a lot of the working groups documentation in the past. Uh, Thomas Fisher and I have gone over some of those things. You know, I, I'd be remiss if I said I, I've read it all. I haven't. But it seems like there's a lot there. So where do you think that's going? What do you think the impact will be? Do you think it will have a gross impact globally? I'd love to get your opinion on that. Yeah, I think it will because... Uh key to uh, the general data protection regulation or the, or the GDPR it's designed to cope with the 21st century use of personal data. So under GDPR, personal data is any information that can identify me as a living individual. So any information by itself or that could be used with other pieces of information that can identify me as a living individual. So that could be like my name, my address, my date of birth, my car registration number, my picture, my passport number, social security number, all those credit card numbers, bank account numbers, all that information can be used to identify me as an individual. So therefore, personal data is becoming very, very important. And under EU perspective, there's a very strong focus on the privacy rights of the individual. So when we look at security from an organization point of view, we often focus on doing risk assessments and designing security programs with the risks against the organization, against the, the corporation, against the business. So what's the business risk? What is the risk to our data? What is the risk to our systems? GDPR changes that focus. It's, it's what is the risk to the individual. So the individual that I have information on, what will be the risk to that person if this information is misused or abused or uh, leaked in any way, shape or form. So that's a significant mindset shift. You're, you're moving away from thinking about the organization and how we protect the organization to thinking, well, how do we protect the individuals that entrust our, their data to us? And I think that's a, a thing that many organizations need to take into account because GDPR, while it's an EU regulation, will also be applicable to any organization outside of the EU that actively sells or gathers or processes information on residents living within the EU. So if you're a US company or your company based in China or India and you're actively looking to to get data of uh, residents in the EU to store or to process that in any way, shape or form, 
GDPR applies to you even if you don't have a presence within the EU. So that's, that's a big fundamental change that will come along. And that's forcing many companies in the EU and, and we've, we've got clients in the US and elsewhere who are looking at GDPR as well to focus on their own supply chain as well because the responsibility goes through the whole supply chain as to who has access to that personal data. A number of big changes in the EU that's going to happen as a result of GDPR is that for the first time, we're going to ha have mandatory breach notifications for all businesses that store personal data. We do have mandatory breach notifications for certain industries, but now it's for all types of businesses that if you process personal data and you have a security breach, there is mandatory requirements to report that to your supervisory authority within 72 hours of becoming aware of the security breach. So this is going to be interesting from a point of view that in the US, you're probably, you know, the, you talk about breach fatigue because you've got so many mandatory breach laws over there. In the EU, we don't have that. And we'll probably come May this year, June, July, and, and onwards, we're going to have a lot more information about what type of breaches are happening in the EU and a lot more publicity about it. So that's where there's a lot, going to be a lot of uh, changes happening over here. There will also be, you know, the, the, one of the big talking points about GDPR is, is that are the fines, you know, that there's potential to fine companies up to 20 million euro or 4% of the global turnover for any serious breach of GDPR. And that's where the focus is. And that's where a lot of vendors have been using to scare people into, into buying their services or products. But there's a lot of other enforcement options that the supervisory authorities have, as well as the fines. You know, that There can be civil cases taken against organizations. For the first time in the EU, you're going to have class action lawsuits, potentially. Individuals don't have to prove there was any direct cost or damage to them as a result of a security breach, they can sue on the basis of the upset or the stress of being involved in security breach they can simply use those as reasons to, to, to sue. And if you take that as a class action, well, then that, that could be quite a significant cost to an organization. The regulators, the supervisory authority can can also prevent companies from, from using data in a certain way or even instruct companies to delete personal data if they feel that the information hasn't been acquired in, in, or used in line with the requirements of, of GDPR. So there's quite a lot of stuff coming out and, and as I said the focus is on the rights of the individuals and, and the individuals are getting lots of, of rights so as an individual I have the right to ask for a, a copy of all data that an organization holds on me so I can serve a notice into an organization and demand from them a copy of all personal data they hold on me and they've got 30 days to give me a copy of that information I can demand that any incorrect piece of information about me are, are corrected and, and brought up to date. I can also request that any information that is no longer required by the business is is erased. For, uh, this is the right to be forgotten. I can say, you no longer need my data for this. I demand that you delete it. We have the right to be informed at every step on the way what an organization is going to do with our data so that if you're going to take my data to sign me up for a newsletter, you have to clearly state to me why you're taking my data, what data you need, how that data is going to be used, who it's going to be shared with, and who I can contact if I've got any uh, queries about the use of, of that information. So there's, there's quite a lot of, as I said, the focus is on the individual rights rather than those of the organizations. And it's, it's moving that balance back to the individual away from the businesses. So it's significant uh, piece of legislation that is, is going to impact companies a lot. 
Yeah, I think we'll see its impact here more pro- profoundly and prolifically in the next in, in the next year or two as well. Chris, what do you think about GDPR? What are you seeing in your in your travels with respect to it? Possibly it's because I'm not as up to date. You know, I haven't read through it all, but definitely, obviously, a lot of confusion from me and from other folks out there. Uh, there was a story last week that not sure if you guys saw. There was this uh, French website, L'Express, which I guess had a couple gigabytes, 60 gigs of data on their readers. It's like a news website, 693,000 readers, and it had names and email addresses and profile photos. And I thought it was odd that we're only a couple months really away from this thing going into effect. A French woman who's in charge of data protection wouldn't say whether or not that information was uh, sensitive or not. So I'm kind of curious when it comes down to quantifying this info, what's sensitive, what isn't, would they be penalized for having names and email addresses? I guess I just don't know where, where the lines come down. Now, there is uh, special categories under GDPR and data protection. There is positive because special category data are, to coin a phrase, data that's more sensitive. So your, your name, your email address, your phone number, your home address would not be deemed to be sensitive or special category. Not that it doesn't need to be protected, but it, you know, it, it wouldn't be deemed to be as sensitive as special category. And, and special category inf- information is information that's much more sensitive to the individual. So it covers things like your race, your ethnic origin, your political views, uh, religious beliefs, uh, trade union membership, health data, genetic data, biometrics. And, and that's actually going to be an interesting one because now that biometrics on the GDPR is rated as being special category data, there's a higher level of justification for its use. And there is going to be interesting to see can companies use biometric data for secure access to systems or biometric data for clocking staff in and out of the workplace. So there's still going to be stuff there. But other information that's spread category would be health data, uh, particularly mental health data, any information to do with your sex life or your sexual orientation as well. So that information needs to be more protected than your name, your address, etc. You may notice that I didn't mention financial data in there as being sensitive data. So your your credit card numbers or your bank account numbers, technically under GDPR, is not deemed to be a special category. But what you have to do is any data you get and you have on individuals, you have to do a data privacy impact assessment, which is an exercise that you do to figure out what would the impact be to that individual's privacy and their rights if this information was misused or abused in any way. So it's a risk-based approach to a regulation. So it's very much, your GDPR is not a checklist, do A, B, C, D, and F, and you'd be okay. Step A is do a risk, risk assessment, and step B then is, okay, based on your risk assessment, what are you going to do to provide adequate security around this particular data. So that's a mindset that many organizations will have to grapple with as well. It's a lot to digest, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, it's interesting when you say what may the risk look like or what might be any ramifications for the individual where this data to be compromised. That's foggy, right? You know, because it's hard to say. You know, it depends on where it's disclosed, how it's disclosed, uh, you know, in terms of depth and breadth of an audience, if it's, you know, 
There's a lot there. It's very interesting. I mean, I find it fascinating that it's at the root of it is really for consideration of the individual's right to privacy. Yeah, I think, well, if you, if you look back at the history of data protection regulations and laws in Europe throughout the decades, the, the focus has been on how that special category data I just mentioned and listed off there, you know, religious backgrounds, trade union membership, sexuality, and all that sort of stuff, how that has been abused in the past to target minorities or target individuals and persecute them in the past are to be misused. And that's why the focus is on the individual rather than on the, co- on the corporation. And, you know, GDPR applies not just to private businesses, but also to government agencies as well. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. That does make sense when you think about, you know, the Council of Europe and, you know, what Data Production Day is, is based upon. So obviously much more of an onus on uh, the individual's data. So Right. With that in mind, as we say, a slight segue... So, Brian, knowing all that, right, and looking at what you've, your, the expanse of your work with respect to security strategy as it relates to management organizations and ecosystems, working with GRC professionals, trying to bridge those gaps to, and narrow the space that exists between GRC-oriented folks, uh, professionals, versus those who are typically more threat-focused. What do you think the softest targets are today? From an industry perspective, from a vertical perspective, population perspective, who do you think are the most susceptible today in your travels with, you know, in the work you guys are doing with BH Consulting, what you're seeing? I think what we're seeing is that larger organizations are slowly getting their act together. They are looking to put in more robust controls from a cybersecurity point of view. So they're looking at and just preventive but detective measures as well. So they've got DLP and SIEM solutions being put in place. So they're, they're becoming much more mature. And like criminals at the end of the day are going to look for easy ways to make money. And therefore, they're looking at the smaller businesses and particularly businesses that may be involved in the supply chain to larger businesses. So if I can't break into bank A, well then why don't I just have a look at their supply chain and see have they got any small businesses that provide them with, with uh, interesting services that I, if, I, if I was to hack into or, or compromise that business, could I piggyback from that business in, into the target organization? Or does the target organization outsource some of its business process into another business that so instead of targeting the main business i just target the outsourcer and i've got the data that i need so that's where i see the trend moving it's it's moving on to the mid you know away from the enterprise down to the medium and small businesses because they don't have the same resources as enterprise businesses they don't have the same budgets to spend. They don't have skilled resources. Many businesses rely on uh, small mom and pop IT shops to support them. And those IT shops themselves don't have the necessary cybersecurity skills to, to understand what the threats are. So I think that's where we're going to see a shift. And and criminals look to make money as quickly and as easily as possible. And that leads us where we're seeing a lot of exploitation of the easy wins, you know, like you see criminals targeting small businesses and, and other businesses, ransomware, looking for a quick win on ransomware. Like five years ago, you infected a computer. It was like, you know, you just infect the machine and you wait until you got the data you needed off that machine and you siphoned that, that data off over a period of time and then you monetized it. The quickest way to monetize something nowadays is to hold it to ransom. So... DDoS extortion attacks against businesses, ransomware attacks against businesses. We're seeing a lot of that. And then on top of that, we're seeing this CEO fraud, our business process compromise, whereby criminals are 
pretending to be the CEO or senior management of an organization and sending fake emails or communicating in, in different ways to the accounts payable people to convince them to ship money out to a bank account under the, under the criminal's control. So they're looking for quick and easy ways. And that's where we're seeing the criminals focusing nowadays as well, because the larger organizations are getting better prepared in defending themselves. So let's move away from them and let's look out to the easier targets. Now, I'm not saying the larger organizations can sit back now and relax because the larger you are, if you take Equifax, for example, you know, the bigger target you are as well, you just have maybe more targeted or more uh, specialized threat actors coming after you than you would have against the rest of the population. Yeah, those are really good points. You know, one of the things that I, you know, oftentimes think about with regard to soft targets, right? You know, I, I tend to think of things hierarchically speaking when I talk, when I think about uh, targets of interest, targets of opportunity, soft targets, right? When I was back when I was with NetWitness, we coined a term that's become an, in, an industry phrase, which is kind of funny to me to think about, <laughs> maybe largely because the origins were so poor. Uh, we didn't have a, we didn't have a better a better name, so we we, we settled on waterholing. And Chris Ellison was on weeks ago, and when we were talking about that, you know, when you think about soft targets, I tend to think of deep and wide. And interestingly, uh, now it seems as though ransomware has been a bigger and better opportunity for opportunistic cyber criminals. One of the things that I found noteworthy in the course of the last couple of years was really kind of the transition and the migration from traditional digital currency, uh, non-crypto oriented currencies to cryptocurrencies as it relates to the criminal underground, right? So looking at mulling ecosystems, you know, who are doing traditional wire transfers to digital currencies, to cryptocurrencies. What are you seeing, Brian, with regards to upticks in misuse and abuse of cryptocurrencies as it relates to overt criminal activity? Do you see things, you know, you mentioned ransomware. It's a great example. Most, if not all, of the more recent ransomware campaigns that I can think of in the last four years have been oriented around payment via Bitcoin. But do you also see a movement with respect to laundering, money laundering on a larger scale perspective, uh, utilizing cryptocurrencies? There's a whole ecosystem behind this. Well, like so, like ransomware is nothing new. We've had ransomware going back to the 1990s, except back then to pay your ransom, you had to wire cash, to wire money to a different country. And, and it was easier for the police then to trace that money because it, it was over wire transfer. But with cryptocurrencies, it's easier and quicker for the criminals to get their money. doesn't mean it's not traceable because police are, and law enforcement are developing capabilities of, of, of tracing cryptocurrencies. But it can be easier and quicker for criminals to, to get the money and cash out. Likewise, you know, the CEO fraud is where, where criminals have got bank accounts under their control. They take in money and they launder through those bank accounts and send it off somewhere else. You know, criminals have used online gambling websites to to launder their their ill-gotten gains as well, where online poker games in, in some cases have been used by criminals to launder their cash. So you have four or five different accounts sign into a, a poker game, but they're all losing to one particular account and then that account checks out with the money. Whereas the other ones have, you know, that everybody around the table suddenly has is the same criminal, but he's logged on or she's logged on to to many different uh, online gambling accounts, playing at the same table. So if you if you're the unlucky sod, stumble across that table, <laughs> you could also lose your lose your own money there. So criminals will use very many ingenious ways to launder their ill-gotten gains and to get rid of it. And 
we just have to be trying to be one step ahead. It doesn't mean we, we should demonize a technology or a platform uh, simply because it's been misused or abused by a certain element. But we just need to be ensure that we have the right resources available to law enforcement. I think coming back to the hub of the conversation we're having is that we've, we've, we've focused about how organizations protect the information, but you know we need to look at society, how it protects the individual as well, and how society protects businesses. You know, I run my business here in Dublin. I pay my taxes, I pay my rates, and I know that there's police officers patrolling the streets, that uh, there's physical security around the place, and, you know, we need to ensure that in the online world that police forces are given the right tools, the right resources, the right laws, and the right supports and tre- international treaties to enable them tackle cybercrime. Because, you know, if someone wants to break into my office, they have to be physically here in Ireland to do it. If they want to hack into my business, they can do it from anywhere in the world. So we need to evolve with the threats and evolve with the landscape, with how criminals work, so that we can tackle them and bring them to justice. Yeah, all good points. Very good points. We're coming up on the end of our time. One more question for you. I wanted to, you know, get your perspective, especially given the broad spectrum of work you guys, you and your firm do in, in Europe and Asia. What do you think about the recent uptick in, in interest and almost savior mentality that, that's been introduced in and around uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence within the I find it fascinating because data, data science is not new to number one to the world, but and also not to security either. But recently, it seems as though it's the term du jour, uh, or those are the terms du jour have been hijacked and appropriated, uh, and and there's almost like a messianic message being kind of brought to bear with them. So, what what are your thoughts on that? Do you think data science and machine learning and AI will save us? I don't think it will save us. I think well, first of all. I think the terms are being grossly abused and misused, but that is nothing new for our industry to, to latch onto a term and to have the marketing people run with it until and until it's dead. You know, you mentioned with the last time we had a good long chat was at an RSA conference and every RSA conference you go to, there is always a different theme to it. You know, and it's always, as you use the phrase there, do your theme, you know, like what's the latest and greatest thing today that we can scare people with or we can get people to buy stuff with, you know. So we talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence. But really, are we talking about there? In some cases, if you peel back the the glossy cover that uh, has been put onto a product, you find that it's just a bunch of scripts that are, and it's a whole lot of if-then statements that it's not proper machine learning, it's not proper artificial intelligence. I do think it has a place. It's not mature yet, and I don't think it would be for quite a number of years before it's something that we can look around. And I think, you know, I heard a great phrase from Raj Samani, who's the chief scientist with uh, McAfee Labs there uh, a few weeks ago. He, he said that the security industry is, we're always busy looking for the silver bullet to the security threat. But the thing is, not every threat is a werewolf, you know. So the silver bullet du jour is now is artificial intelligence and machine learning. Last year was seen, the year before that was threat intelligence. You know, we have all these silver bullets, but we don't seem to be using them against the right threats. So to me, we need to get the basics right before we start trying to, to strap all the stuff onto it. So getting good operational procedures in place, getting good uh, security hygiene in place, 
understanding what the key risks are to your business and managing those risks and, and understanding the threat actors that are, are going to be targeting your business. Like not every business is going to be targeted by the NSA or the, the FSB or, or any of, of intelligence agencies. So why are we wasting a whole lot of time looking into those type of those threats? Your threats are more likely to come from your systems not being patched properly. Somebody opening up an, an email with a, a virus attached into it or clicking on a link or using a weak password. So let's get that stuff sorted. Like artificial intelligence and machine learning won't help us solve those basic problems. So once we get the basic problem solved, as Wendy Nader calls it, the the, the infrasecurity poverty line, once we get, get above the infrasecurity poverty line, then start looking at the more advanced tools and the more current solutions that might be out there to supplement what you have in place already. Yeah, good points all. Well, Brian, really a pleasure speaking with you and uh, really great having you on the show. Number one, I can't wait to see you in person again so we can sit down and... Uh, yeah, it's been too long, my friends. Yeah, have, have a pint and kind of kick back. I'll have and, two uh, pints. <laughs> <laughs> or if Christmas yeah. Day, we'll have to have three. <laughs> That's right, yeah. One of these days soon, I'll, I'll be bringing my blushing bride to Ireland for a visit. You know, before we leave, is there anything else you'd like to kind of close out with? Anything that's new and around the event horizon with BH Consulting that you'd like to tell the audience about? No, like we're not ones to blow our own trumpets. You know, we, we our website bhconsulting.ie has all our services out there. But I do think the focus of our talk has very much been on technology threats and technology solutions. I think we also shouldn't forget that one of the most effective tools we have in our arsenal to to protect our, our environment is are the individuals and the people. And one of the key things we, we should be looking at is developing a security culture where people are security aware and able to identify threats and not be afraid to report them. Uh, and as businesses, then we should have a, uh, a culture as well that we're, we're not afraid to share our experiences with, with, with others so that we can all learn to, to better protect ourselves. Yeah, very good point. In fact, we're uh, speaking of security culture. We've got Kai so, Roar, yeah. uh, who's going to be it's joining. Good. Yeah, I think in like a week, right, Chris? Is he on next week? <laughs> Excellent. He's on. I think he may be on March fifteenth, right? Is that right? The Ides of March. It <laughs> <laughs> so, could be. That could be. That we may have chosen the wrong date. Oh yeah, he'll be coming on and talking to us about uh, security culture development. So, uh, Brian, again, thanks so much for your time and uh, for joining us. For those listening, this is episode episode nineteen. <laughs> of the Digital Guardian podcast to join us today was our special guest, Mr. Brian Honan, President, CEO, and Founder of BH Consulting. And you can find BH Consulting. Brian, again, what's your URL? Uh, bhconsulting.ie. We're on, on Twitter at bhconsulting. Fantastic. Thanks again, Brian. We'll talk to you soon, sir. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you.